Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, celebrating its fifth anniversary this week. Five years of being desperately incorrect. You know, when I was a young child, I dreamed of being a broadcaster so I could be wrong professionally for a living, and here we are. You'd think that being wrong for so long would get you depressed after a while and make you wane in your in your purpose. But I it, has, it has only just made it stronger. I I'm think. at the top of my game. I've never been more wrong than I am today. I'm just getting better and better. I'm going from wrong to wrong, strength to strength. That's Michael me. Walker is with me. I am Mark Bainey. This is a board gaming podcast about board games. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, Dwellings of Elder... <clears throat> Sorry, I got Easy. something. Easy. <laughs> Dwellings of Eldervale. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I got to get Wonderland's War back to the table. This is a one of the big releases from this year because they had a one of the usual follow-up Kickstarter to... So, because it was so popular another big sort of mini expansion but everyone gets to order the base game again right because retail doesn't really exist anymore and kickstarter is definitely not a store it's so true so this is a bag builder but with it's like a quacks of quiggle bird but with an actual game there you're you're <laughs> you're building your bag you're you're trying to defend these territories it has a lot of fiddly bits but i just can't see my way around cutting any of it out it all just seems to i don't well the setup is is onerous it is other other than having to find the wonderlandians that come up i don't think there's a whole lot of fiddliness during Uh, play well it's just you know there's there's like corruption and there's wonderlandians and there's and there's quests and there's and there's the shield and and when when do you break and when do you corrupt and when the mat there seems to be all these different moving parts i stand correct and when you're trying to teach it it's a little, you know, fiddly, but I still, I can't think of any way to, I can't think of anything I'd want to cut out of it. Yeah, and it's a solid two hours, and definitely if you're going to be that long, you had best bring something to the table. And I, I do very much enjoy Wonderland's War every time I get a chance to play it. The connection between the very simple rondelle element and the press-your-luck combined with area control, which is very, very novel, is very compelling. And I thoroughly enjoy Wonderland's War. The theme does nothing for me. I'm not one of those no, Carol enthusiasts. It's just a very well-supported theme, though, right? It the is. The colors and the art, it all comes together. Yes, and the way that it integrates a variety of secondary characters in a secondary manner to the so- sort of, I guess, Carol mythos is, is the way I'd put it, because, you know, the Jabberwock doesn't belong in Wonderland, strictly speaking. It's just another thing that Lewis Carroll wrote. And then, you know, the Jabberwock just glumps into to Wonderland, so... That was a literary reference, Walker. Did you get it? Reading's fun. Galumph is a word that was invented in, in, in Jabberwock. Gotcha. Gotcha. Anyway. Gotcha. <laughs> so, yes, the, uh, the most recent Kickstarter introduced some cards, some balance fixes for the Mad Hatter and the Jabberwocky. 
I played the Jabberwocky, did not win, forgot my powers lots of the times. There's lots of things to remember. <laughs> not was, only do you have your own ability that you get a, all the, right away, then you have, you know, several other abilities that you're going to unlock that trigger at all sorts of different times, and and there you go. Was the Jabberwocky made more strong or less strong? Stronger. Oh, I see. And I think the Mad Hatter less strong. I believe so. Well, I think you probably would have done better in the game had you remembered to apply some of the abilities. So this is true. And 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 when you're the teacher and you're trying to, and they're all new players, so when you're trying to bring along sure. three other players along for the ride, it's hard to you know keep your own tableau up to date. So and we are the last people, consisting as we are, of filthy casuals. Though you, I think, are sweaty tryhard curious. <laughs> We're not really the kind of people that you should consult for balanced data. No. It is true. So, uh, Wonderland's Awards published by Druid City Games. They do things like title blades and other lavish productions. And it's designed by Tim Elsner, Ben Elsner, and Ian Moss. We played a game of Fantasy Realms Deluxe Edition. The game of draw a card and see what you got. <laughs> In theory, this is a game about finding a good combination of cards. The problem that I always have with games of this ilk is that I, I often find that given that the game is going to be relatively short and Fantasy Realms is very short, it's one of its virtues, you're either going to stumble into something or you're not. So I pull a card that says, well, this uh, Wamber Nozzle will give you an extra 76 points if it's paired with the Spanunalak. And then the Spanunalak hits the table and it's like, well, I'm clearly a very smart player. I will take the Spanunalak. And then, you know, at the end of the game, I get 175 points. And I was like, oh, how'd you do that? It's like, well, as it happened from this giant deck of cards, I pulled one that wanted one specifically and it came up. And I, being the genius that I am, I took it. So yes, Fantasy Realms for me is, if I were interested in engaging in essentialist discussions about what constitutes a game, I would say it's more of an activity than it is a game, but I'm not one of those people, so instead I'll say, it's a game with not a whole lot going on. It's, But I don't think it overstays its welcome. I think, I know maybe in our case, I don't know, maybe I'd disagree if, I, if we did physical scoring. Okay, well that's just it. So, so the first times we played it, we played it on Tabletop Simulator, and it's completely automated. It will, you know, coast through the cards super quick, and then either a give you a running tally of the score, or instantly give you score at the end. Right. We got the new deluxe uh, physical version, and we played it. And I found an app that's much like the Imperial app, Imperium, Imperium app, where you can just take a picture of the table and it'll give you, it'll rack up your score automatically with just a few clicks of yes. your options on your cards. It was very quick. And unlike a lot of those other scoring apps where you have to engage in a whole bunch of pull downs and specifically select all the individual cards with good text recognition, I think that we're actually getting these score apps that are actually faster with that. I am willing to play Fantasy Realms because you you spend most of the time playing the game. Without it, you spend most of the time not playing the game and just tallying things. Now, there are some games where the scoring procedure is longer than the actual game itself. I'm thinking in particular of Space Alert, and I'm also thinking of either Lightspeed or its later iterations, where the scoring actually is more in-depth, than the uh, more time-consuming, I should say, than the actual gameplay. There, I'm, I'm willing to accept it because you're watching something unfold. When you score a hand of Fantasy Realms, you are not watching anything unfold. <laughs> You're just engaging in blunt calculation. Minus five for every flame. Okay, well, I've got two flames, so that's minus ten. Min uh, plus seven to every terrain. Okay, well, I've got one terrain. 
etc., etc. So if it weren't for the automated scoring, I would flatly refuse to play Fantasy Realms, I think. Yeah, it's a neat. It's it's one of these games where you just you have your starting hand of seven cards, and I guess you sort of assess what you're trying to go for. Yes. And then if you have a certain You want company, the Flamber Nozzle. Yes. It's really good. If you, and if you have the Flamber Nozzle, that means other players might not be going for that Flabber Nozzle strategy. Yes. So when, when the ones that key off of the Flabber Nozzle come up, they are, tend not to grab them. So everyone Yeah, which gets, further minimizes the decision space. Exactly, right? <laughs> but it's inoffensive and doesn't overstay. It's welcome with With the automated aid. scoring, yes. So the new Deluxe Edition comes with sleeves. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's I regard it as unfortunate not because I detest sleeves that much, although I do dislike sleeves. It's just you're making everyone pay for sleeves because this is now the edition that's in print. Fantasy Realms has been out of print for a while. This has also some of the other expansions. I've never played with any, any of the Fantasy Realms expansions. So maybe that introduces something resembling uh, a decision space, but who's to say? Anyhow, so... <laughs> I'm glad it's back in print. There are a lot of people who really enjoy Fantasy Realms. That's just their speed. If you don't want to play something that involves a, a whole lot of heavy thinking, except for when the scoring comes in. Anyway, Fantasy Realms Deluxe Edition. Yeah, I think it just feeds off of that that feeling like this time I'm going to get that really cool combination. You know, it's going to all come together. I'm going to yeah, get like a all really the strategy and tactics of a slot machine. Just so, or of a scratch lottery ticket. Exactly so. All right. So we got a. Uh, review copy of a game called Lands of Galzir. This is designed by Aseppo Kukasyarvi and Sami Lakso. And Mr. Lakso also did some of the art. So what Lands of Galzir is, is much like sort of Destinies or one of these other card-driven, heavy-on-the-app side games. But it has a very interesting dice system, like skill-slash-dice system. So there's six different skills and they're all represented on the different sides of these five dice. You're rolling these five black dice for every kind of test you're going to make. And all of the characters start with four skills, and you're never going to get more than four skills on this sort of cir- uh, skill circle that you have. And then, depending on the type of skill, let's say I have a skill in fighting, and it's a fight test, so I can switch one of the black dice with a fight die, because I have that skill. But you can also get sister help from the other two sides of fight. So let's say communication is on the left-hand side of the circle and sneaky thievery is on the right. So you can then also, and you have one skill point in each of those, so you can also take two black dice out and switch in those colored dice because the colored dice have double symbols of the two key skill and single two skills of the ones on either side of it. So that's sort of like that whole mechanism I thought was very interesting. I've never had a game where downtime was so severe and painful. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was 10-minute turns for the first one because you start, you sort of get your starting quest going, right, as your first sort of turn. And then, so that means four people had to go through their starting sort of quest run right off the hop. And you go through the app and you go all your different choices and you it'll give you options. Do you want to try, you know, the hard option or the medium option? Then you're rolling the dice and... It, it, I would never play this game again with more than two people. That is 100% sure. That being said, I, I had a, had a ball playing it. Uh, I played it the night before. Unfortunately, I had put it all the sort of ads saying this is what we're playing. And then I played it the night before. So I knew how it went. And I was like, Oh, 
<laughs> Four oh, is not the number. Yeah. Oh, no. And so I, I warned everyone. I said, okay, come on. We, we have to make sure that, you know, we know what we're going to be doing. Yeah, I need just you to know how this dice system works. So as soon as something comes up, you're rolling and we're, and we're moving along as fast as we can. That being said, the symbology on the cards is very interesting. You have all these companions that are coming to help you out. It's got cards that are set out of the game. So if you, uh, sort of trigger something randomly, so Robinson Crusoe Cruise style, you're, you're taking these odd cards and they're now going into the randomization parts of the deck. So interesting stuff like that. I'm looking forward to playing. I'm going to play it a couple times solo because there's four characters. They all have their own sort of origin story and the way they're going to play. I'm going to go back to it. A lot of adventure games have very serious downtime problems. So you're saying it's just like Mage Knight? Yes, exactly yeah. like Mage Knight. Yeah, fair enough. It's published by Snowdale Design. And that was Lens of Galzir. I finally got to try Horizons of Spirit Island. Horizons of Spirit Island is the Target exclusive new intro set for Spirit Island. It is a it is limited to the United States of America, but I know of a magical technique known as crossing the border. And in point of fact, a couple of patrons are going to be sent copies of Horizons of Spirit Island this week. And I was very curious about the new spirits, because that is why you buy Horizons of Spirit Island if you already have Spirit Island, because you don't need the lesser versions of the existing components, like cardboard Chitsford Han instead of lovely little wooden huts, as an example. I chose to play Eyes Watch from the Trees, in large part because they specialize in fear and defense, two of my favorite elements to pump in a game of Spirit Island. And they're kind of like the benevolent voice at the start of the uh, of the horror movie, or at least I parse it as a benevolent voice at the start of the horror movie. The one that says, get out, and then the protagonists refuse to listen. That's that's eyes watched from the trees. They're the ones who are like, look, trying to give you a heads up, not a good place to be, you might want to leave. And then the ignorant people are like, oh, you know, I wonder what that was. Must be a settling noise or what have you. Anyhow, I think this was one of the most crushing victories I've had in Spirit Island for quite some time. And I think this is partially because Eyes Watch from the freeze, uh, Trees really worked to my playstyle because every time they generate defense, they can then gather Dahan. And so basically what you're doing is you're massing this retaliatory force at the same time as making sure that the initial attack will be blunted. And it's a great way to clear the island. You don't have to generate damage. You have the Dahan do it for you. You just have them group up and it's wonderful. And then, then you have these invaders being like, do we really have to ravage? Well, it's on the agenda. We must ravage today. But we're surrounded by a billion Dahan. Nonsense! What are you talking about? Anyhow, I love having the, the colonialists smash against the rocks of the eternal tide and be broken. And it was a lovely, lovely time. So if this is an augur for the design work that went into the other beginning spirits, I'm very uh, the other spirits in Horizons of Spirit Island. I very much like to engage with them. There's a there's a strong community. What's the word? Disdain, I think, for a lot of the intro spirits. You know, people love to put out tier rankings, and people love to talk about how you know the, the, these these intro spirits they don't really hold their own. There's this idea that the only way to play Spirit Island is you know difficulty level ten against a, a level six adversary or something like that. And you talk to a lot of these people that oh that spirit's no good. It's like what do you mean? It's 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 an awful lot of fun to play, and it's got some really interesting powers. Like yeah, but at, at high level play, it's just not as effective. It's like oh okay, well. Go go go! Do that, you sweaty tryhard. I'm actually reminded of a discussion I had with some of my friends back when people used to have large parties to play rock band. I don't know if you remember the rock band with the plastic instruments and all that. And people would say, "Oh, you know, this isn't a very good song." I'm like, "What are you talking about? It's a great song." It's like, "Yeah, but it's it's repetitive to play on rock band." It's like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were talking about music, not just a repetitive rhythm challenge." Anyway, it's a weird category mistake that I often find. 
So I love Intro Spirits. I find a lot of them a lot of fun to play. And Eyes Watch from the Trees was a blast. I'm looking forward to trying the other ones. That is Horizons of Spirit Island. Full disclosure, Arik Royce, the designer of all the Spirit Island stuff, is a personal friend of mine. So Weather Machine, the Kickstarter by Vidal Lacerda, oh boy. was just uh, fulfilled. Unleashed? Unleashed. And they had a new uh, graphic designer slash artist on it, Ian O'Toole. Never, never heard, heard of him. him. Never heard of him. So this is another Eagle Griffin game. Seems to be putting out his designs lately. And it's, this is the first one I've ever purchased myself. I've played quite a few of Vital sort of games, but they've always been owned by someone else. I thought, you know, this might be the one. I really like the the sort of theming. You know, you're building weather machines. There's robots. It has this like sort of steampunky style. And you go to a Vital sort of game for well-integrated themes, so. Yes, exactly. So no, not so much for this. So as, so as I, you know, open the box and, and see the four eight-page player aids, I sort of looked in the mirror and, and, and thought, what, what was I thinking? Exactly? <laughs> so it played much like many other Vital Asertas. It's like, pull the many levers. You can't do that because you don't have this and you can't do that until you have this. But I am looking forward to going back and, and trying other things. It's very much, it's very much a Vital Asserta. It's like, you'd think, you'd think that there's like the supply action and and you need <laughs> and you need gears in this game and you'd think that during the supply action you could buy gears but you can't so there's this there's this like it's stoppage during our game where where one person had taken the supply action they just bought gears because you know it's like well you know we, we lower our supply thing and we get gears and then i took it i look in the book and it's like well none of this symbology says you get gears and if, sure enough you can't get gears <laughs> <laughs> when you do the supply action, you have to do the, you know, the five step process of doing other things and getting the reward and the reward will be gears. Cause that's what makes sense. <laughs> Why would you buy gears at a store when they get given to you free when you get a, a, a goal, but in order to get the goal, you need gears. <laughs> All right. So yes. So we're going to go back. I am going to go back to weather machine and I'm going to play it several times and 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 learn this game. So there was this post-Kantian philosophy named Hegel. And I've come to the conclusion that Vitalisarda is very much the Hegel of board game design. And I would like to articulate the critique that Soren Kierkegaard, sort of the godfather of existentialism, had of Hegelian philosophy. And that is that when you're doing Hegelian philosophy, much like when you're playing Vitalisarda, you're engaging in all this mental effort to try to get to the unconditioned. Or in the case of the Vitalis Arda, you're exerting all this mental effort to try to get to the actual game state. And then finally, the person collapses from exhaustion into your arms. And you say, what is it that you found? What are we left with? Nothing. The person says, we're left with nothing. He's the Hegel of our age. Yeah, I, I just really feel as though... And I can see why people enjoy these games. They really like to to figure out the puzzle and, yeah, fight, and fight the game. Yeah. Like multiple handcuffs. It's like other games, I, I need to get this, so I go here to get that. I get that. I get to do the thing that I wanted. Not so much in Vital Serta. Ten steps, and some people just enjoy figuring out that puzzle. Absolutely. System mastery is definitely a joy that some people experience very profoundly, and if that's your if that's your jam, then Vital Serta is your guy. And, and I'm going to play it and see if I can and tweak out a little bit of that joy that they see. All right. Best of luck with that. 
I get to play Resurgence. Resurgence is a recently fulfilled Kickstarter from Stan Kordonsky, he of Rorik Dawn of Kiev, as well as the more recent uh, he's more recent co-design of Endless Winter Paleo-Americans. We quite liked Rorik Dawn of Kiev. It was very cute. It had a lovely little auction mechanism. And Resurgence bills itself as a bag builder. It kind of is, and it kind of isn't. I mean, you can throw anything into a bag and cause that to be the shuffling element. You can redesign Dominion as as a bag builder, which people have done. And then some people named David Serlin rip that off wholesale. But you're still basically just playing a normal deck builder, and the bag is just a convenience for shuffling purposes. I quite like the recipe element of bag builders, where you're pulling out these little nodes and use them to trigger various actions because you have the right combination of things, a la Hyperborea, a la Orléans. Resurgence is a combination deck builder in a bag with worker placement. You pull your workers out of the bag, you then commit the workers to various areas, which and that commitment in itself is a kind of an auction for going up a track, which is mostly just worth victory points, and then you put them out onto the board. Nothing about it is particularly thematic. It's just reasonably tightly designed and functional. And nonetheless, it was very enjoyable. It was kind of dry, but the worker placement was so tight that I was able to appreciate it. The resources are very, very, very scarce. When I initially read the rules, it says, well, look, you can go where other people are, be they the neutral faction that the game controls or any other player. You just have to pay one resource of any type every time you do. And I said, okay, well, that'll be trivial. No, (laughs) it will not be trivial. It will be very expensive because frequently what you might do for a worker placement action is to send a worker to go get one of a thing. And when that is sometimes an action you do... (laughs) Suddenly, other people being there is a uh, crippling barrier. So I do like tight resource worker placement games, you know, in the vague uh, in the, the vague vein of Agricola. You don't have to feed anybody here, despite the fact that this is a post-apocalyptic theme and everyone looks like they uh, they would love to have a good, decent meal and maybe a nice place to sleep. You nonetheless don't have to worry about that much. You have your standard recipe fulfillment and track climbing. Again, nothing about this is particularly clever or innovative like you were able to point to in the case of Rorikdon of Kiev. But it's uh, it's also not the sprawling, athematic mess that Paleo-Americans sometimes devolves into. And so you're left with something that is mechanically sound and engaging with, a, with more player interaction than a lot of looser worker placement games. And thus, I found it perfectly enjoyable. I don't know if I'm going to be rushing back. There's not a whole lot of variation between games. Uh, Mostly the variation is in terms of what missions come up, what specialist workers come up, what there are different end game bonuses, but one end game bonus might be here's some bonus points for ending the game with lots of food. And another one might be here's end game bonuses for ending with lots of scholars. And so eh, not what you would call substantial variety in terms of setup. Happy to have tried it. Comes in as small a box as possible, which I'm always in favor of. And Stan Kordonsky has thus far established a track record of always designing, at the very least, solid games mechanically. And so that was my experience with Resurgence, published by Half the Kingdom Games, designed by Stan Kordonsky. We got to play a game called Darkest Dungeon, the board game. This is like the first of these big video games board games things that that are going to come out. We're going to have a Frostpunk game very soon. So this does something very interesting to sort of link it to the video game. So they sort of abstract out this, this initiative system, which I thought was very interesting because anyone who's played Darkest Dungeon, it very much matters where your fighters are positioned in this two-dimensional line. You know, you want your tanky type fighter at the front and, and you're ranged at the back, typical sort of line up there, but you 
But in the board game setting, you also have this traditional dungeon map. So how they do it is when you use the same abilities as you would in a, in the video game that would shift the line around, you go up to the initiative track and you slide it around instead. I found it very interesting and you still get the movement bonuses on the map, but I really enjoyed how it how it, you know, did a twist on the initiative system. I have to say that in terms of adapting original property, this is quite impressive from a lot of aspects. Uh, for one thing, I would highly encourage anybody who's tempted to try Darkest Dungeon, the board game, to go and acquire yourself a Huey, because Huey does the narrator voice from Darkest Dungeon almost perfectly. So we had him read all the flavor text, and that that added considerably to the game. I think your enjoyment of Darkest Dungeon is going to be one of those cases where sometimes we talk about, oh, well, you know, if you're an appreciator of the original property, you'll probably get a kick out of this. I think you have to appreciate the original property in order to get anything seriously out of Darkest Dungeon, the board game. Other than that, it's pretty bog standard. In, in, a, in a sea of good co-op Dungeon crawler adjacent stuff. Is there anything to recommend Darkest Dungeon above Street Masters, above Hellboy, above even Gears of War in terms of just licensed stuff from years ago? No, I don't think there is. The initiative system that you speak of only really strikes you as clever if you recognize it as an evocation of the video game because... As it is, it's mostly just a restriction on what skills your character can use, which made more sense in the video game when you as a player are managing a party of players. When you as an individual are handling one single fighter, it's just an, it's just a way to force you to use a subset of your given abilities. So it doesn't end up leading to any interesting choices in the board game context. So, yes, is it the case that all your favorite character classes and all their abilities work almost exactly the same way? Yes, and that's kind of impressive, to be frank. I was very impressed with the degree of, of, of verisimilitude it has, if you want to use that term, to evoke a fictitious vid- uh, video game world. It didn't feel as attritional as I feared it might, because the Darkest Dungeon video game is all about attrition, gradually losing stress, gradually losing food, gradually losing tools, this, that, and the other. But as it is, as as I say, there are a million and one campaign games competing for your attention. Darkest Dungeon only works as a campaign system or at a PvP mode, which does not look appealing. And the combat system is pretty boring when you strip away its overall uh, uh, connections to the video game. So as enthusiasts of the original property, it's good for a laugh laugh or two. Past that, I don't even think it reaches the same level as recent releases like Massive Darkness. You're rolling a D10 to, to try to do your thing. It's relatively obvious what to do. You do some damage. You move on. That's about it. But like you said, that it... If you enjoy the video game, you'll love this because they brought these 2D sort of flat picture arts and then they rendered these 3D models and it it so captures the same sort of style and feel of the game. It is. You're absolutely right. And I do want to stress how I think the miniature is very much like the mechanisms do an incredible job of evoking a very, very particular product, namely the Darkest Dungeon PC game. And the miniatures are wonderful, but... Almost every game with miniatures has wonderful miniatures now. So there's that. That's true. And in terms of components, while we are on the topic... I was going to say, not only do you have to get a good narrator for this game, you also have to get a very big table. There are about a dozen different decks of cards that you need to be able to manage... And they're not really labeled, so you have to remember, okay, this one with the, the, the incredibly dark back with the red line, oh, no, that's not the monster deck, this is the room deck. The monster deck is the other dark back with a red line down it. And just managing the decks of cards 
they very helpfully come with these tech talk boxes with images of what card backs are on there, but the card backs are all super dark and the pictures are all super tiny and they don't label them properly. So I don't know what goes where. And so struggling with, oh, you need a curio. Oh crap. Where's the curio deck? Oh, it's one of the only decks that says curio on it. Oh, great. That's fabulous. Oh, but now you need something else. Oh, geez. Yeah. Not only the picture in the rule book is so small. It's like, oh, that's so small. I can barely see it. And then you got to sort of like decipher it on the box. It's like, is that that picture? I'm, yes. I'm just not sure. So some people complain about fiddly things in terms of upkeep, you know, and, and Darkest Dungeon is a lot about buffs and debuffs, that part I thought was fine. You know, you need to organize the tokens and have someone be in charge of the tokens and hand them out. That part was okay, though. The difficult part was just managing all the decks of cards and getting, getting accessing them at times. Ugh. So, I don't know. I'd be willing to try it again, but this is one of those things where it's just, is there a group of enthusiasts about the source material that will bring us through? Uh, Compared to other things, again, even compared to things like Massive Darkness, and certainly if you want to compare it to Oathsworn, or if you want to compare it to Frosthaven that's coming up, or if you want to compare it to any of the Gloomhaven that you haven't played already, not worth a second look. This is purely getting by on its license, but... I will say that at least it's not lazy about the way that it's instantiating its license. It instantiates its license extremely well. Agreed. So that's Darkest Dungeon by Mythic Games. Designed by Nick Noetis and Algiris Puntagras. Played a game of Innovation. Innovation is on Board Game Arena. My enthusiasm for innovation is such that I was willing to engage in the digital board gaming. Wow. Yeah, I haven't done it in months, really. I couldn't remember my board game arena password. I had let my membership lapse some time ago. I had to do the system recovery thing. And I logged on purely because somebody on the Patreon exclusive Discord said that they were interested in having a game. I'm like, I haven't played innovation in a dog's age, and I love innovation. And so I was willing to engage in board game arena for that purpose. Innovation is a marvelous game. It is absolutely the kind of tableau builder that puts a lot of other tableau builders on its ear. You have to remain flexible. I love games where there's a sea of unique effects, but if you're able to keep your head about you and try to find your own path forward, you're going to be able to get there. It's kind of like the opposite of engine building, where it's about putting together these pieces that have been very, very laboriously put out for you. It's rather just being able to find the pattern in the sort of weird 3D picture, and then suddenly everything falls into place, and you're able to seize on your momentary advantage. And innovation is probably best with two players, which is one of the reasons why I don't get to play it very often. Amongst experts, a four-player team play, I think, is is just fine, even sometimes amongst new players. But three-player is kind of weird in a lot of ways. But I will happily play innovation at any opportunity, and that is why, as I say, I was willing to engage in, in it in a form that I normally don't enjoy. Innovation was designed by Carl Chudik, published by Asmati Games. Disclosure, Asmati Games is run by a personal friend of mine. And it has been far too long, and I should probably make sure that it is not a delay of equivalent duration before I play Innovation again. Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So the moment that everyone kind of saw coming happen, HeroScape failed to meet, meet its funding goal. Uh, they wanted thousands and thousands of backers and millions and millions of bucks. And there was only one pledge level, 250 bones. Now, a lot of people are willing to speculate as to why it failed. Well, it's a very small company, Mark. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of noise going on with the failure of Heroescape Age of Annihilation. I think the smart money is that the unpainted miniatures, although they didn't help, probably wasn't the deal breaker. The deal breaker for a lot of people, I think, was just the high cost of entry. Uh, because there are, there are people who are already knee-deep into Heroescape who will happily throw more money at anything. and that, But that was pretty much the only target audience that was willing to go onto it. If you're somebody who doesn't know Hero Escape from anywhere else, you're drowning in options to spend a couple hundred bucks for a lot of pretty miniatures and, and, and a nice game. And so the notion of resurrecting some sort of mass market creature that you never interacted with probably isn't part of the appeal. Anyway, so there were lots of testimonials of people who said, yeah, I've heard good things about Heroescape. I'd happily pony up maybe even $125 to $150, but $250, no thanks. So uh, hardly surprising, especially given the incredibly lazy way they rolled out the crowdfunding. So first of all, it was on Hasbro's bespoke crowdfunding platform, HasLab. They didn't really advertise it. There were no gameplay videos or rules available at launch. There was hardly any pictures of the materials. There were just some lazy 3D renders of the components, and that was it. I'm quite frankly, I'm amazed it got as many pledges as it did, to be entirely honest. And a lot of people are now saying, oh, come on, Hasbro, people pledged a million bucks. That's not enough. It's not. A million bucks ain't enough for Hasbro to get out of bed. (laughs) When you're a big company, the fact that a project will probably make you some amount of money ain't a guarantee to do anything. Similarly, if you're playing a game of modern art and your defense after losing is saying, but on every deal I made money, no, doesn't work that way. They have bigger fish to fry. My only sadness is that they probably won't ever bother to retool, and they'll just move on to something else. Maybe, if we're incredibly lucky, we might hear more rumblings about Heroescape in 10 years. I sincerely doubt that what they're going to do is devote any resources and saying, why did this fail? Can we come back? Can we make a better effort? Can we try to get... No. Not going to happen. It's sad. I'm sad. No more Heroescape. Sad. Are you sad too, Walker? A little bit sad. A little bit sad. On the topic of pre-painted miniatures we have atomic mass games who took over x-wing who took over armada who took over all sorts of things from fantasy flight games they are now putting up a new star wars game this one's called star wars shatterpoint and it's sort of a very smaller skirmish type star wars game but of course the the scale is going to be different so you can't use you know first you have an are you serious imperial salt and then, and then they had to make the figures a little bit bigger for Legion, for Legion. So, so you couldn't use your Imperial Assault figures. And now these ones are a little bit bigger, so you can't use your Legion figures. Is this Inquisitor all over again? Inquisitor all over again. <laughs> this is going to release in June of 2023. And for, for people who are not familiar, this is a reference that's probably pretty obscure. Games Workshop made a game which had a number of, of big fans called Inquisitor, but they were 54 mil figures. And... 
one of the reasons why people didn't get into it was because a lot of people who who might be very into Games Workshop products don't have terrain for 54 mil. Now, I am not a purist. I'm happy to put any. I use shipping containers for games of from 5 mil all the way up to 30 mil. That's fine. I don't mind. But I'm not exactly your typical Games Workshop target audience. Do you know what the scale is supposed to be of the Shatterpoint? No, I, d- I didn't look that much into it. I just know it's not the same as Legion. And... I just agree with you on that because it had some interesting sort of rules in Inquisitor and and who's going to build an entire different set of terrain for a scale, especially when Games Workshop, you know, had so many different titles that worked in the same setting. Okay, I've just looked it up. Legion is approximately 47 mil and apparently Shatterpoint is going to be approximately 40 mil. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this terminology, we are referring to the height of an average human in miniature form. So a 28 mil scale, which is very, very common, your average six foot tall trooper roughly is going to be roughly 28 millimeters from foot to head. Uh, So this is interesting. This is just all kinds of confusing nonsense. So it's going to be four or five models in a squad. If you watch the video, you might get a little excited because I got excited. Some interesting looking stuff there. Looking forward to checking out the rules. We'll see. There is speculation that it is going to be very, very similar to Marvel Crisis Protocol, because that's already a small-scale skirmish rule set that Atomic Mass has been flogging. But this is weird. So Atomic Mass used to be FFG, and now they're doing their own Star Wars. This has got to ca- this has got to cannibalize some of Legion's fan base. It's got to be. Yeah. This is so strange. So it is very strange. So it is the Holland Days sale for Holland Spiel. They have their Hollandaise sale. So if you're interested in picking up some Holland uh, Hollandspiel games but don't know where to find them, these are the works of Annabelle Holland. So things like the Table Battle series, things like the Dual Gauge system, and now the, their brand new game, Dinosaur Gauge, where you can invest on the stomp market, Walker. Oh, Lord. Oh, come on. It's delightful. I love me the copy that Hollandspiel writes on its various games. Annabelle Holland is one of the best copywriters in the business. And the text surrounding Dinosaur Gage is absolutely delightful. I have pre-ordered a copy. And if you order two or more copies, you get a a free micro game. This year, it's Watch Out. It's a Dracula. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Slightly uh, less serious than their previous offering, Republic of Virtue, about the French Revolution. (laughs) Slightly less serious. A smidge. It is a property auction game in which one of you is a Dracula. I, I can see that. Yeah. So we talked about the adaptation of Darkest Dungeon, and uh, it is but one of many very expensive, and this time very expensive, video game miniatures heavy adaptations. Two of them that are up on Kickstarter right now are Heroes of Might and Magic 3. I don't know, Walker, are you a Heroes of Might and Magic person? I, I played it. Because there are people. When it first came out. Because there are people who will not shut up about Heroes of Might and Magic 3. I don't know. Three specifically. Yes. Look, I understand having your favorite in a series. I, I play fighting games. I know I know how this works. Uh, but there are people who, to this day, will not stop talking about Heroes of Might and Magic 3. Anyway, so Archon, a somewhat controversial Polish publisher, is going to be making that. The base pledge is, I think, uh, $26,000. Steamforged Games, also controversial publisher in that their products are crap and fulfilled badly, has the acquire, continued to acquire licenses willy-nilly, despite the fact that they don't deserve any of them, is going to be publishing Elden Ring. Elden Ring, as those of you who listen to the Patreon exclusive show Bloat, 
was a big favorite of mine over the course of the year, and I have zero interest in this project and will not be pledging for it. The base pledge for Elden Ring is $576. So, you know, bargain at half the price. Oh, you gotta pay for that licensing, <laughs> apparently. This is what we call hyperbole. This is not actually what the base okay. pledge cost. Well, the other ones with thousands, and 500 is... is to make the hyper... Nowadays, I'm just riffing into... on the... Oh, God, yeah, gotcha. Actually, you're right. It is a sad <laughs> statement that you couldn't tell that that was hyperbole. Yeah. Oh, if you want to spend that much money on Elden Ring, oh, you can. But at any rate. Finally, there was an interesting article that I am linking to in the episode description by Dicebreaker about the work of the labor practices of Pandasaurus games. I don't want to talk specifically too, too much about Pandasaurus games. I just want to emphasize how I've been seeing stuff like this for decades. Anything in what could be vaguely called the hobbyist market, you end up with this sort of cultural attitude that, well, you know, this isn't really a business. This is more of a pick-your-favorite-idiom-here. Group of enthusiasts, family. Look, if you're going to do a job, get it in writing and get paid for your work. I'm sorry. It is the nature of things. I mean, look, some people do free things all the time. This is po- We're podcasters. Lots of people podcast for free. If you want to do that, go forth and chase your bliss. But if you're doing it for somebody else and they're cashing in at the end, get it in writing, get paid. And that isn't even just about being a, a, a mercenary. This is about having some degree of respect and guaranteeing fair treatment. I've been involved in lots of different fields. Academia, the movie business, where there are lots of people who do lots of work that they're not being paid for and they should be treated better. I've been seeing this for decades. And usually it happens with people at the top who mean well and who get sincerely offended when they get accused of having bad labor practices. And to a certain extent, this is one of the things that I've been talking about in academia for for decades when people listen to me. Professionalism will save us. Good practices and good policies that are followed assiduously and that have oversight and transparency are a long way towards a solution to a lot of these problems. Get it in writing, get paid. That is the news, and why it doesn't matter. On now to our feature game, which is Dwellings of Eldervale. Dwellings of Eldervale was fulfilled after a successful Kickstarter by Breaking Games, designed by Luke Laurie. It is a kind of sort of worker placement kind of thing. Luke Laurie has a history of publishing worker placement games. He co-designed a couple of them with Tom Jolly, venerable game designer, specifically Manhattan Project Energy Empire in 2016, and then Cryo in 2011, also with Tom Jolly. He's also, with Scott Caputo, he co-designed Whistle Mountain in 2020. Now, what all of these games have in common, all four of them, is that they are the somewhat modern pattern of worker placement games whereby on your turn, you either place a worker or you take everybody back. Without going into too more detail, and I certainly wouldn't want to steal Walker's thunder, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Dwellings of Eldervale? In Dwellings of Eldervale, after explaining how combat works, you must pause and wait for the look of horror on the faces of the players to fade, turn to anger, frustration, and or even confusion. Then starts the passing of the rulebook, as each player needs to confirm and come to grips that what you just said is the reality they must endure. (laughs) And as the teacher, you think, man, why didn't I just grab Cryo off the (laughs) shelf? I think you're actually being unkind. Usually it takes a couple of turns for people to realize how bad the combat is. On the face of it, it kind of seems okay. I haven't sat down and crunched the probabilities, but usually you just have to see it in action to really appreciate how horrible it is. It's like the Matrix in that way. It is. So what you're actually doing in Dwellings of Eldervale is, like you have already said, you're placing out workers in these two different areas, and you're either... Or you're pulling them back. And as you pull them back, you can 
engage these other special abilities that you got by putting the workers out in the first place. And they also have all these different fancy workers that you can get. And there's this sort of double, triple down scoring system if you build the dwellings. Some of it is very interesting. Some of it is pull your hair out. <laughs> what would you like to start with then? Well, I have the setup, which I just thought there was this, this little niggling thing for setup. Because in order to set up the map, the players have to choose their factions. Because every faction represents an element. And so only those elements are going to be relevant on the board. So in order to start teaching it, you have to have the map out. So they have to sort of pick their faction without knowing the rules. That's which seems point. kind of odd. And and the setup's not nothing because there's there's uh, because like I said there's eight elements so there's these eight dungeons and then there's eight different stacks of tiles and then there's the five ruins and then there's all the monsters. It's not a tiny setup. To give credit where credit is due, it is a giant box with functional inserts. It's not it's not like Wonderland's War where the giant inserts stand in the way of good setup. Here, at least, you can pick out a lovely tray and be like, this is the fact- This is the tray for your faction. It's got everything you need. But on the plus side, after everything is set up, it's a fairly basic teach. Because like we've already said, you either A, putting out a worker, B, pulling your workers back. Unfortunately, though, I find that, that part of the... This is one of those games, I think, where in order to teach it effectively, you're really going to have to emphasize things that are emergent from the rules. Like, for example, this is this is a very, very mild criticism. This is just a hint or an advice for people who are going to be introducing Dwellings of Eldervale to other players. Or, in other words, villains. Um, you should really emphasize how it's difficult to get an advantage in combat, <laughs> and you can have to roll with it, which is fine. And the other thing to emphasize is... The scoring, because you can explain the entire game and get a vague sense of things, but really, this is a game of buying cards and putting out huts. That's that's where you're getting your points. The rest of it is noise. It's a rounding error. It's incidental. That's where the big point scores go. And so I, I find that it's it's one of those experiences where people playing Dwellings of Elderville, they're just... They're kind of blinded by the apparent variety of things to do, and there are a fair number of things that one can do, but it's shorter than you would expect in terms of number of rounds, and mostly you just want to gobble up as many cards and huts as you can. Yeah, you can very very easily be distracted in this right. game because there are monsters, there's combat, there's you know going into dungeons, and all of this is just noise. You want to kit out your cards rather than getting new ones. You want to spread out and try that new token over there. You want. Yeah, this is why when, I, when I set it up, I try to put the elements track in the middle or closer to the middle, and so it's sort of like 50-50, so it doesn't look as though it's off to the side and nothing, and that and that the map is the main thing, because it's not. Right. The big part is on the elemental track, and I say, and I tell them right off the beginning, you're just going to be scoring mo- majority of your points at the end of the game based on this track. Well, but also that track in combination with the cards. Again, this is one of those things, we've talked about this a number of times with, with, with different games. The ergonomics of it are difficult, because you need to be able to see the eight stacks of cards relatively easily because they're a key source of points you need to know when you can afford them and so you're end up in a situation where you want to be able to easily view the tracks and access all the card stacks all the while there's still the sprawling board that keeps getting bigger so it's a bit rough in that sense uh you know pro tip if you want to be a sweaty tryhard at dwellings of eldervale sit next to the cards it's true and so i've already hinted at the fact that there are eight different factions and all the boards are double-sided so technically there are 16 different factions and they all have different abilities, mostly based on the different unit types. There's uh, four different units, and 
and there'll two of them will have a special ability based on which faction you're picking. Some of them seem a little broken or overpowered than than the others, but I think at the end it, it all sort of washed out. They're all fun to explore. I've had a, I've had a lot of fun playing with the different toys that the core faction abilities give us. There have only really been a couple that have caused me to roll their roll my eyes, and it isn't even so much for balance reasons. Uh, some factions basically have abilities that verge on take that. Either in terms of, oh, you lost a fight against me, lose a resource, which is not fun. Or, oh, you don't want to be involved in this fight? Well, guess what? I'm dragging you in anyway, which is also not fun, which is one of my key criticisms of Dwellings of Elder Vale, which we'll get to later. But yeah, the toy factor of playing around with the different factions is very enjoyable. And then there's magic cards, which seem a little bit like take that or, hey, I just happen to ticket to ride stuff off the top of the deck. Oh, yeah, there's which, a lot of that. Which is unfortunate, but. Yeah, it seemed to like low in the last game that we played, like a lot of people were milling those cards. It seemed like it was working out for them quite, quite well. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's a lot going on in terms of Dwellings of Elderville that can cause you to get distracted and messing around with the cards can be one of them. But like to be specific, I had a an artifact, namely a card that I had purchased, which I purchased mostly because it was going to be worth a lot of points at the end of the game, QV how to do well in Dwellings of Eldervale, according to Mark, a very short book. And what it did was it encouraged me to play as many spells as possible. So this is one of those rare times where you could drag what might have been an ancillary element of the game into the core engine of scoring points. And there I felt that, that things were a little bit more integrated than they could be. Dwellings of Eldervale doesn't sprawl particularly badly. I mean, it's it's relatively sprawling. It's very much trying to appeal to those people who are like, ooh, worker placement and combat and fantasy adventure, yay! But ultimately, it, 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 when it is at its tightest and most integrated, it is at its best. And most of the time, you have to find those or stumble into them. I don't think I'd ever really found a combination as satisfyingly integrated as that one I discovered in the last game and all, all the other games that I played. So let's talk about the different workers that we have. You have your normal workers, which you give them little hats. So it's... It's, it's not, so weird. It's not a nothing mechanism because it's interesting. Because Oh, it's to, an important mechanism. It's just physically it's weird. Well, just the fact that not only do they become the dwellings, but now you're losing a worker. So it's this yes. like, interesting balance that you have to keep, you know, make sure you're constantly pr- giving yourself more workers. It's true. But a dwelling in Dwelling of Eldervale is a worker with a hat. Yes. And it looks like a worker with a hat. It does. With <laughs> people, a giant roof on his head. People invariably, when they look at their faction trays, they're like, something's wrong with this dwelling. <laughs> this is a this is a pathetic little dwelling. It's like, no, 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 it's a hat. Like, oh, all right. <laughs> it's, just, it's just weird. And there are wizards, warriors, and dragons. And they all have their generic ability on top of the ability that they're going to have due to their faction. And and they are all very interesting. They're also going to have different dice they're going to roll in combat, right? They're going to roll more dice. More on that later. And um, fortunately, Dwellings of Eldervale is a worker placement game where you can purchase more workers, but purchasing more workers is not the dominant strategy. You can get by with a couple. In some cases, you might be advantaged in having lots and others. There's a certain degree of flexibility there. This isn't This doesn't fall into the Agricola problem. Agreed. And then there are two different, and then you're building the map. So the map starts out, and these are your sort of worker placement uh, areas that you're going to put these workers out onto. And this There's, is where th- the problems start to begin. Yes, because there are rules, and this this all sort of cycles together with the combat, is when you put your first worker out, they must be in a completely empty hex. And at the beginning of the game, that's not so bad for multiple reasons, because A, people don't have many workers, Two, there's only one monster at the beginning, and two, there's a whole sort of. You're on. You're on the three walker. 
You already did two, so now you're on to three. There's a lull period in before any combat starts. But as the game progresses, people are pulling their workers back at different times. There's more monsters. And therefore, finding an advantageous, completely empty hex is harder because after you've placed a worker, your next worker must be also adjacent to that worker. So trying to chain what actions you want to do without getting completely destroyed because of what we said with the recall ability if your workers die they go to the graveyard and you don't get these fancy special abilities when you recall your workers from the graveyard ones only the ones that come off the map that are still alive will be able to trigger these these recall abilities so let me articulate my main problem and then we'll illustrate it through going over some of those in details because you just covered a lot my main problems with dwellings of eldervale is the actual worker placement is exceptionally uninteresting and when you combine it with a whole lot of other mechanisms, it seeks to underplay its most interesting gameplay elements. So, as a consequence, very frequently in my games of Dwellings of Eldervale, I look at the map, and the map has grown since the beginning of the game, but by virtue of other people's placements, again, not to block me, but just to do stuff for their own interests, and by virtue of random happenings with respect to the map expansion, there's nowhere interesting to go. Sometimes there's hardly anywhere advantageous to go, let alone interesting. And that's even setting aside the fact that there might not be anywhere good to go if I want my workers to survive. Seldom is it the case that you look at the map in mid-game or late game and say, oh, I can go here safely, and this is an interesting thing to do. Most of the time you choose between safety and interesting. I don't mind if the smart play has risk attached, but ultimately it ends up feeling dull. For, the, for some of these problems. So let's talk about combat. So combat happens in lots of different ways. Like I said, your first worker must be an empty, but after that you can place an adjacent, and if there are other people there, and there are other ways, other abilities that we talked about that will pull workers around and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and monsters will come chase you if you ever place in an adjacent space. Correct. Which, aside from the first couple rounds of the game, will cause lots of weird combats. And indeed... The arc of, of Dwellings of Eldervale is so bizarre. You start off very, very weak. And near the beginning of the game, you're constantly being hounded by these monsters because it's a small map and you're weak. There's hardly anywhere for you to go. And so the monster is just killing people left, right, and center until someone randomly <laughs> ends up getting a really lucky roll and killing the monster. That's not satisfying. Well, the good part is that you get to do the action of the area first. So at least that's one thing. If it yes. was the opposite, it would be awful. Yes, you get to do the boring thing first. Absolutely. <laughs> you get to do the boring thing first. Then you tell then if at the end, while you do the after you do the boring thing, hashtag boring thing. Um <laughs> That was my nickname in high school. Then if there are any opposing forces in the hex, there's going to be a fight. And everyone rolls. Monsters included. Monsters usually roll anywhere from three to five dice. And then you add up how many workers you have there, or warriors, dragons, and you get those dice. If you have any dwellings in or around that area, you'll get some more dice. Everyone rolls the dice. High die wins. Pretty much, yeah. So if I rolled a six and a five and Mark rolled just a six, I win because – or if I roll a six and a one – and Mark rolls a six, I win. Because that has got no problems with it. Because, because his, second, had, his, you, his second die is zero. You had superior numbers. The part that, that bothers me is the frequency with which a single die can beat three or four. So I send in my dragon, and it gets killed by a worker. Or you send in your worker and kill a monster rolling four or five dice. 
that's just obnoxious. And we're not talking about after I boost it and buff it with a variety of things. And yeah, there are cards that can help you in combat. Some. Yeah, but it's going to say very few. There are swords that give you more dice. But again, if, if the problem is with the flukiness of the dice, adding more improves your odds, but not by a whole heck of a lot. It's just bizarre. So again, circling back to what I said before, if you want to go and do the thing you want to do, you might well be blocked. If you want to go and do the thing you want to do and not risk a foolish combat, well, then your options start to narrow down sometimes to zero. And ultimately, losing a fight or winning a fight in and of itself ain't no big thing. It's not a huge deal one way or the other, to be entirely frank. But the problem is is that the part that I really like about Dwellings of Eldervale, or that I want to like, is what happens when you pull your workers back. When you pull your workers back, you get to activate a variety of possible options as you pull them one by one. You start off with three available options, and you get more as the game goes on. And that interplay between sending workers out and activating various various effects, and then pulling them back and act, running this engine that you built, and that you were then able to customize... That part is cool. And when that's happening, I'm enjoying myself. But the problem is, in order for this to work properly, what you need to do is be able to place where you need to place, not lose any combats over the course of doing so, not further get attacked and lose a combat over the course of doing so, and then make sure all your workers are still alive by the time you pull them back to actually activate your cards. This sometimes happens. And when it does, I feel like I'm playing a nice game. It's true. And it sort of doubles down on that because in order to put out a dwelling, which is a big scoring That's the part, worst example of it, yeah. In the game, you have to have two workers left alive because you have to pull one back to engage the build a dwelling action and then build where that worker is. Yeah, so you have to have two workers survive in specific places. They can't have been moved by shenanigans. They can't have been sucked into a battle because of weird powers. You can't have been attacked by another player and lost. And these are usually workers. One of them has to be a worker because you can't build a dwell. The, the wizard can't wear the hat. The wizard's already got a hat. And dragons don't wear hats. We know this. Exactly. The warrior... is too busy. Warrior's too busy. Yeah, yeah. Swing the sword too fast, the hat would fall off. That's just stupid. So only a worker can wear the hat, and workers are very vulnerable to dying. Now, how would you defend your worker? Maybe by bringing in other people. Oh, but if you bring in other people, then suddenly you're not going to be able to get to the place that builds the hut in the first place. Anyway, so to be fair, too, there is a spot, an action spot that you can go to during the the phase that you can build a hut as well. Yes. I don't want to be brought up later that, you know, well, there's a spot on the map that you can... Oh, we weren't playing it right. That's why we don't like it. Exactly. Well, that's that's another problem. If you really boil it down, and I'm doing violence to a number of things in doing so, there are basically two spots on the board that give you points. In terms of seriously advancing your, your, your interests, one of them is indeed being able to build the hut. There you need to, to place on the hut building space, and you need the person standing somewhere who's going to become the hut and by donning the magic hat of hutness. The other spot is the dungeon. And very frequently when people realize this, because the dungeon is where you go to buy cards. Cards which can you can very easily score 10 points by going to the dungeon if you've set yourself up. Because they move you up on the track and they score based on where you are on the track. So it, it's a compounding interest and benefit. Going to the dungeon is great. I highly recommend it. Some jerk is probably standing there. Or some monster's probably next to it anyway. That's fine. Going into the dungeon and then dying, that's okay. But the problem is when you're looking at the board and someone's sitting on the dungeon, which they almost invariably are, you start to figure, okay, so what I'm going to have to do is put out a worker, and that worker is going to have to survive so I can use that worker to ground another worker to then go to the dungeon and do the thing that I wanted to do. And ultimately, 
really, once you start looking at the game, and again, I, I, people are going to accuse me of being a, a, a tryhard here, but if you just look at it in terms of advancing your victory conditions, there's two places to go, and that's about it. It's true. And I, so it, it ends up focusing a lot on the dungeon. And uh, I know. I, I was beginning to enjoy that sort of figuring that puzzle out of of knowing when to put out your workers, where to put your workers, and when to pull them back. It's not just a, a, a game of, you know, put out all your workers and then pull them all back. Oh, it's yeah, like, yeah, true. It's like I put out, I'm going to put out these two and then quickly build a hut and pull them back yeah. and then go somewhere else. They survived long enough for me to do what I needed to do, uh, get them out. Absolutely. That part I like too. But I don't, I think you could have had that just from the threat of, of, of tempo, not from the threat of, oh, well, if I don't do it now, the miracle I got by surviving this long will be undone through a random series of nonsense. Like there's no, just if there was some way to mitigate risk, if there was some way to, I don't know, do an action less powerfully, but be less vulnerable to just so, just so that I could set things up and not feel as though what I was setting up could be completely undone by arbitrary map happenings. If it were more deliberate on the part of my opponents, if there were other ways to mitigate it, any, any number of these things would, would make me happier. A, a more, slightly more deterministic battle system. Yeah, I would worry about it bogging down, but, but I, I still say... It is awful. I don't. I don't know about it. I don't even know what would cause it to bog down. Because how many wasted rounds do we have? Because like, okay, maybe I can get to the. Oh, they're dead. True. Okay, well, I need to pull them back and do nothing. All right, let's try again. I think that, like, in terms of of AP, yes, AP would go up. Analysis paralysis would increase. But I think the pace of the game might improve if you could lead to a slightly more deterministic rate of people getting to the good stuff. All right, let's talk a little bit more because we talked about sort of customizing your cards. Let's go ahead a little bit heavier into that. Cause we it's talked my about favorite part of the game. I love it. The maps, the, the maps that we've talked about, the, the tiles that we've talked about of the map are the ruins and they are the, the actions. Now there are a bunch of other tiles called the elemental tiles. And when you go there, you get to take a piece of treasure off the top of these stacks. And these are square counters that you'll, you can hold up to four on your board. You can cash them in any time for the resources that are, printed on them but all of these cards that we talked about that you get usually have slots and even your starting card has a slot that you can either improve or change the resources that you're going to get and even some of them will say pay resource that you slot into here to get this resource so it's this cool like you said engine that you get to build yourself and get the resources you need yeah you build you build the engine first by getting the cards and then you further customize it by slotting in these tokens that you get and when you have enough workers to run it <laughs> because they didn't die then it feels great and honestly it's why I feel Dwellings of Eldervale suffer, suffers so very badly in comparison to Cryo. Because Cryo was worker placement game by Luke Laurie and Tom Jolly. Luke Laurie, who designed Dwellings of Eldervale, has that exact same system, only it leans more heavily on it, and you're not subject to the vicissitudes of some weird monster showing up and killing your ability to run your engine. And so I, I, this, this part that I really like of Dwellings of Eldervale is just done so much better in Cryo, and it doesn't have a whole lot of the other baggage that Dwellings has. And so I, I find myself, despite the fact that there are lots of differences between the two, unable to see a reason to prefer Dwellings over Cryo. So lots of things. I have, there's eight different monsters that are, that will that have a chance to come out. Eight elements that you have to keep track of. Eight different resource types in the game. Lots of stuff. I'm wondering if that could have been funneled down a little bit. 
end of game scoring is what we talked about is this elemental track it's all multiplier so the 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 higher you go on these tracks it multiplies against how many dwellings you have out in those actual areas so say you know five you're on five of the chaos track then every dwelling you have on a chaos hex is worth five points and every chaos card because all of these cards that we talked about have an elemental symbol so all of your chaos cards will be worth five points each as well what's weird though is is that in most games of this ilk certainly a euro management game you'd have to exert some effort to get the cards and you'd have to exert some effort to go up the tracks in dwellings of eldervale Again, especially once you realize that the rest of the stuff in terms of advancing your victory conditions is is sometimes noise and sometimes just a distraction. You go up the track by getting the card. You go up the track by building the dwelling. And so it's just compounding interest. It's not a tension between advancing the two. It's not further effort in terms of getting it done. It's just, oh, you bought the card? Well, not only will the card benefit you from how high you are on the track, it'll go up the track for you. All right. It's true. And we didn't have bases, Mark, that made sounds. That was Maybe that's why we didn't enjoy it as much <laughs> as we should have. Yeah, this is... Uh, so we played the retail version, which is has no shortage of, comp- of high-quality components, has all the custom trays, even comes with some large and impressive miniatures, but you don't use it for the base game. You only use it for add-on modules. Some of the Kickstarter extras are truly ridiculous. Bases that make the monsters make noise. I have not encountered these in real life, Walker, have you? No, I have not. Yeah. That uh, that definitely sounds like something you don't need. And having found the uh, the noises of the Return to Dark Tower somewhat tiresome, I think it's the kind of thing that you'd you know press once when the monster showed up, and then maybe someone presses a couple more times because they're fidgeting with it, and then you call it a day. It's true. It'd but be, it'd be a tingy sort of electronic sound, I'm sure. But the good news is, if you do want to buy any expansions, there's definitely room in the box for them. And how do we know this, Walker? Well, because you know most. Most times when you buy a game, there's just no room for them, but they want to make sure you could have room for the expansions. And then in those cases, they usually you don't know, put cardboard spacers, but then you you might not know what the cardboard spacers are for. But in this case, they give you full size color production boxes of what you could get and where they would go inside the main box. It just comes off like an ad to me. And I rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, it's, just, it's just marketing. I mean, I'm glad that the box is big enough to fit expansions. I mean, the box is big enough to fit a family of four. Uh, but uh, honestly, <laughs> just seems like yeah, more marketing. It was a rough. More marketing. I had to laugh. It was like, oh, I didn't know this came in the box. And then, then I pulled it out. It's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> it's empty. <laughs> Dwellings of Eldervale, I think, is definitely the kind of game that would benefit from a good editor. Maybe even a good collaborator. Maybe someone like Tom Jolly, who's been around the industry for a while. Uh, yeah, I think that Cryo does everything that's clever about Dwellings of Eldervale, almost, and introduces some new excellent stuff, and doesn't have a lot of the nonsense. Dwellings of Eldervale, for, for a relatively simple game, I felt like it was fighting me too much of the time, and when things happened to me, it mostly felt like it was just random exogenous events from people going about their own business, and weird fights causing my people to die, so I couldn't even interact with the fun bits of the game. This wasn't even me being frustrated at doing poorly, this was me frustrating at not being able to interface with the parts of the game that I thought were clever. So Dwellings of Elderville for me is an exceptionally frustrating experience, especially when compared to Cryo. I agree with the the, the comparison to Cryo. I'd play Cryo, I would play it any time over uh, Dwellings of Elderville, but I'm, I'm still enjoying Dwellings. I'm going to keep it for a while. I think as soon as, as, I've, as soon as I've seen all the dungeon cards, I think at that point, uh, you know, I'll be 
tired of it. It's, like, <laughs> I, it's that seeing that new interesting card or that new interesting combo that I haven't seen yet. I think that's the only thing that's keeping me going. Other than that, it, it's not a terrible game to play. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We appreciate you spending some time with us at So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at sowronggames.com slash contact. All our contact information is there, plus lots of quality information on sowronggames.com. By the way, when I said get it in writing, get paid, I was not talking about Warm Boy. This does not apply to webmasters for podcasts. That's, no. that's, the, that's the obvious exception. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.